Welcome to the Pacific Point Church Podcast, where we're learning to love and live like Jesus. During this half hour, we're praying that God will direct, encourage, and speak to you. If you would like to partner with Pacific Point Church and our church plants, you can download the Pacific Point Church app at the App Store or visit us at pacificpointchurch.com give. At that same site, you can also watch and listen to previous sermons, read follow-up blog posts and extended notes, and even connect with Pacific Point Church on social media. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Second here. All right. How's everybody doing? Good? It's a little warm. I'm sorry. We're working on uh, AC. Hey, during this series, what we've been doing is we've been allowing you to ask questions. Um, it is not, again, I want to make clear, stump, stump the pastor. It is questions. If something comes up during the message, you're like, what does that mean? What do you, you know, I'll answer them at the end, and that's the number you text them into. If you also notice in your chairs... Uh, there are these Bible studies. There are three distinct Bible studies here um, that uh, the first one that relate to what I'm preaching on. Get in the Word this week. Now you don't have excuses. It's, it's a, a great, clear, clean, simple Bible study that I would like you, if you uh, to, to jump a hold of because it is, it is good, good stuff and very, very important. So we are in a series called 37, and 37 really is around this principle that George Barna did a study, and what he found was this, 37% of pastors in America today, only 37% of pastors in America today, preach, live a true biblical worldview. Gets worse, we said, 13% of teaching pastors have a full biblical worldview, and only 12% of your children's church pastors, not these, because we have vetted them and we know that's not true, but 12% of children's church pastors in America today have a biblical worldview. Those are scary statistics. And looking at that, it just caught me and threw me, Hence the series that we are preaching on, and it's around a biblical worldview. A Christian worldview, a biblical worldview looks like this. God at the center. God at the center. A secular worldview looks like this. Man at the center. God is at the center of a biblical worldview. The first week we talked about purpose and calling in a biblical worldview. Two or three weeks ago we talked about family and the value of life, and then we talked about God, creation, history. Last week we talked about faith practices in a worldview. If you want to hear any of those messages, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to them. You can get them on the website. Let me pray before we get going here this morning. Father, I thank you for this time, for these men and women. God, move me aside. Holy Spirit, speak. God, give us ears to hear. Give us a heart to receive. Let the soil of our souls, God, Forgive, uh, forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive me for my, my anger. Forgive me. For, Lord, let me be right before you. Let us be right before you as you speak to us today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd move in this place like never before. God, I pray for miracles. I pray for healing physically. I pray for healing spiritually. I pray for healings emotionally. God, that you'd touch us today. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. This week, you landed on a great one. We're hitting sin and salvation. If you have, come on, that is good. Look, the reality is this. If you don't have a clear biblical worldview on sin, then you're in trouble. Get my Bible. What did I do with my Bible? I had a Bible. I thought I brought a Bible up here. It's somewhere around here. Oh, it's back there. Uh, if you don't have, thank you, Eddie. I appreciate it. If you don't have, I forgot to bring it up here, a good 
foundation, a biblical foundation on sin and salvation, you're in trouble. If you're a Christian and you don't hold on to it, there are problems that come with that. So this whole series is about this. I have been called to equip our church people with the foundations of a biblical worldview so that when you leave this building, you're different. You're different. You're making a difference in this world. Because church doesn't happen here, it happens out here. This is when we come together and worship and have a good time and eat donuts and drink coffee. But out there is where you preach the gospel, in your place where you work. But to understand sin, you must understand the worldview that is being preached. In the last five weeks, we've given you five different worldviews that are being preached. And wouldn't you know it, there's another one for this one. This week's worldview is expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. Expressive individualism looks like this, per Carl Truman. It holds that human beings are defined by their individualistic psychological core. And the purpose of life is allowing that core to find social expressions in relationships. Anything, anything that challenges it, this worldview, expressive individualism, is deemed oppressive. Don't put your, your stuff on me, is basically what he's saying. Including God. Including God. So let, let me... Are we all right? Oh, what, just, just lose it there? Okay, sorry. Um, this week was sent in salvation. Is that me? Sorry, Seth. <laughs> We're playing like a game of ping pong back there. He's hitting and then I'm hitting. And here's, here's the reality of sin and salvation. The Bible takes sin seriously because God takes humanity seriously. In the world, we've taken sin and just kind of pushed it to the side, but God doesn't do that. That really, okay, now we're on the right slide. Uh, expressive individualism. Let, I, you know what, let me, I, this is what I want to do. I want to show you what expressive individualism looks like. Because I, I need word pictures with this. It's a modern notion of self, which we called expressive individual, lies at the heart of the current cultural conflicts. What we're seeing about what's happening in culture, it, it, it is, is based in this, this cultural expressive individualism and this is what it looks like now I have a chair this is our chair from our house my my children and my wife and my friends and Jeremiah and Ryan and other people when they come over they go oh there's your throne they literally joke with me because it's my throne most of the time when they come over they see me here and they see me watching sports sitting like this and I usually have a glass this is soda which I usually have a glass of soda <laughs> let me move that um, but I, 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 and they, they joke, especially Ryan mocks me and says, oh, you're in your throne again. This is what expressive individualism looks like, okay? Because it, it looks something like this. Now, I'm going to offend some people here, and I'm really happy to do so. It looks like this. Self. Abortion. My body, my choice. You don't get to make that choice for me. Lust, sex. Look, I just need to take care of myself. I just need to take care of myself. You know what expressive individualism looks like? It's ugly. It's very self-righteous. It looks like politics. It looks like this. 
Did you guys know that Jesus voted for Trump? Do you, do you know that Jesus can't stand Biden? This is what expressive individualism looks like. It looks like radical racial politics. You know what? The white race is the chosen race. There are Christians that believe that. Wait, wait, wait. The black race is the chosen race. There are black men and women, Christians, that believe that. Oh, no, no, wait, 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 wait. There's Asians that are the... You know, it's, it's this radical, there are divided races. Expressive individualism. You know, it looks like freedom of religion. Expressive individualism looks like I can choose the religion I want. In fact, I can take a little bit of that religion, a little bit of this religion, a little bit of the religion over there, and I'll mix it all together, and we'll call it good. <laughs> Why? Because it's about me. It's all about me. It, 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 that, that's what it looks like. And, and when, you, when you see how foolish that is, me up there smoking, it ain't foolish when you're smoking a good cigar and you have a nice brandy, but when, when, you're, when it's all about you, it's foolishness. We're talking about sin and salvation. The foundation of this is so important. And what shapes our society is this, expressive individualism. Sin and salvation. The Bible takes sin seriously because God takes humanity seriously. I, I, I love this. John Stott wrote this article, and I, I want to kind of break it down here because he does such a phenomenal job in this article. It says this, the essential background to the cross is a balanced understanding of the gravity of sin and the majesty of God. If we diminish either, we're diminishing the cross. Gravity of sin... The gravity of sin is, is the weight of sin. The majesty of a holy God. Oh God, have mercy. Let's start with gravity of sin, the weight of sin. James says this. After desire, what's desire? It's I get what I want. After my desires are satisfied and conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin when it's fully grown, gives birth to what? Gives birth to death. Sin leads to death. There's a, a natural death, and there's a spiritual death that he's talking about here. Regardless, both are devastating. And both lead to death. Now, now that's the... The, this side of the coin. The other side, the majesty of God. Isaiah 6, 3. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The majesty of God is when I walk out this building and I see creation. It blows my mind. The majesty of God is when I hold that baby. When I look in the eyes of that child that, that somehow she birthed. When I, when I go out to the ocean, I see the, the magnificence of waves and the ocean and the movement and the stars and the sun. The majesty of God comes forth. How do I deny it? 
And there's this tension. And the majesty of God does not allow room for sin. The two can't coexist. Majesty and perfection and goodness and kindness and grace and mercy, who God is, cannot coexist with brokenness and sin. Dark and light, darkness and light, cannot come together. And that's what he's saying. There's two distinct things here, majesty and sin. Sin and majesty. He goes on, Stott does, and he says this. If we reinterpret sin as a lapse instead of rebellion, and God as indulgent instead of indignant, then naturally the cross appears superfluous which is, it doesn't matter, irrelevant. Look, look, this is what he says. Reinterpreting sin as a lapse or relative instead of rebellion. Look, that's what we see in society. The redefinition of sin. What is sin? That's what we see. See, when you, when you define sin as a lapse, oops, another lapse, oops, another lapse, oops, another lapse. Next thing you know, it's like, oops. And the next thing you know, it's just, and that oops is the last goes up. Here I go again. And it says it doesn't feel like the enemy anymore when you, when you lapse into sin. It feels like a reward that makes us happy. And the Bible's very clear sin is pleasurable for a moment, for a season. It's not that it's not pleasurable, it's touching it outside of God's boundaries and what He has for you. And it feels like a relief from a craving that, that instantly begs for satisfaction. It feels like this, la oh, I just had a lapse into my sin. But man, it felt good. And then, but the problem with that is it just continues to go. Grabs a hold of you. Oh, it's just a lapse. When I was, uh, I think I've told the story or whatever. Maybe my mom told or whatever. When we were uh, in Lent season and I was five or so and... And uh, were we at the bowling alley, Shirley? Yeah, we were at the bowling. They used to bowl. That's so 70s, like old people. Bowling on the bowling league, you know, with those two. And, and, and I gave up candy for Lent. It's my mom and dad. They know. I, they're, they're not abused as elderly people. Don't get mad at me. So, um, they, but, but I gave up candy for Lent. And, and I, some, I don't know where I got it, but I, I ate candy. And... and, and I, there was just, it's crazy, as a little kid, I don't remember it, she tells me the story, just the conviction of not doing what I committed to do. But I went to her and, and proceeded to confess, and I said, Mom, the devil made me do it. <laughs> That's a good conviction. Now, the devil didn't make me do it. I made a choice, rebellion and sin. But my point is this, that, that when we look and we go, oh, it's just a lapse. All of a sudden, there's no supernatural. There's no enemy that's poking away. There's no devil that's tempting. There's no right or wrong. It's just a lapse. Just had a lapse. Sin is re as relative. That may be sin to you, but it's not sin in my world. Have you heard that one lately? Have you heard that preached on television? Have you seen that preached from the mountaintops? Don't touch that. That may be sin to you conservative Christian zealots, but not us. 
See, it goes back to why a biblical worldview is so darn important. Why, why, why I'm preaching on this biblical worldview is that, that I would love to justify sin. I would love for sin to be relative, but it can't be because this word is truth. I stand on this word. It gives me hope, and it, it, it directs where I'm going. Therefore, it's not relative. There is absolute. Absolute right absolute wrong absolute lies absolute truth sin is sin sin is sin the Bible calls sin I, I got this wrong I flipped it actually this morning the Bible calls sin rebellion but it's also in the world called expressive individualism that's what the world calls it it's all about me I'm the man. Don't mess with my world. I've got a good cigar, bad diet coke. It's my world. And if I want to feel this way, I'm going to feel this way. I'm going to make that choice for me. Because apparently, I'm God. And I created all this. Does this, does this conversation sound familiar to anybody? You, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, Genesis 3, dear Lord. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And she's sitting in her barca lounger. And she says, hey, hey, serpent, what are you talking about over there? And, and he, you're not going to die. For, you know, God knows that if you eat the fruit of this tree, if you take a bite of that apple, your eyes are going to be opened. In fact, you'll be like God. And that, you know that conversation you have about your sin that I have about my sin in my head and me and the enemy going back and forth? Well, this is one time. If I just have this one, if I just get plastered this one time I can come Sunday and ask forgiveness and John will forgive me or say I can have forgiveness through the cross if I just fill in the blank and we start to justify our sin and this conversation is going crazy in our head and we're sitting in our chair and sin kind of just becomes what we do there's no conviction there's not even a devil made me do it all of a sudden see here's what the Bible says if you remember rebellion because that's what sin is and death are forever tethered together my, my rebellion when, when I'm apart from Jesus is tethered right to death now let me, if you're a Christian, you go, well, you're saved. Okay, well, then here it is. My rebellion as a saved brother or sister is tied to death. You know what that death is? I, I don't want to go talk to God. I break relationship with the creator of heaven and earth. In the same way when, when I, I am a, a, a rebellious or, or a jerk to my wife or when she's a jerk to me, that's usually the case. You know, there's a brokenness of relationship right there. death see the world has told us 
God is indulgent. He'll be all right with it. That God, that crazy God, he'll be fine with your sin. How about a fresca? Anybody know that cultural reference? Anybody? Someone? Come on. Caddyshack, thank you. You guys got it. The world told us that God is indulgent. He's all right with our sin. The world tells us that God, uh, the word tells us, this word, that God is indignant. He's not happy with our sin. He doesn't just take it. God is indulgent. When we think God indulges our sin, it is spiritually very, very dangerous. When you get into that point and, and, and you're like, gosh, I, you know, it, all of a sudden your sin doesn't seem so bad to you. It's dangerous because what it does is this. You, you become, it's idolatry because you say, I am God. I understand better than you do, God. And therefore, I'm going to have my cigar, my drink, and I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. And I know plenty of Christians who do that very thing. I know I have. Indulging your sin is expressive individualism. It's a worldview that is being preached to you and me today and to your kids. I'm going to give a sidebar. Does anybody like Marvel Comets and all those things? I, I have not seen this movie, so I'm speaking from talking to my wife. Thor. Has anybody seen Thor? Be real careful before you go see it because the whole premise is about breaking down who God is. That God is disappointing. God is disappointing. God is not there for you. God will not help you. And they use it in these vague terms of, of gods. But there's a message that is being preached. Don't mistake by thinking that the world is not preaching something. We are all preaching something. Therefore, that is why a biblical worldview is so important that we might preach the gospel of hope and not hate and not racism and not sin, but we'd preach Christ and Him crucified and everlasting life as opposed to expressive individualism. God is indulgent. See, when we think God indulges our sin, my sin, we start to think he is good with our sin. Oh, he's all right with it. Not judging me. I must be good. Numbers 20, or 32, 23 says this, Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. That's scary as hell. The Bible says God is indignant towards your sin. Isaiah 65 says this, Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. The, these are a smoke to my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. It literally, it translates, you're a stench in my nostrils. God takes sin very seriously. There's no way around it. And, and you go, man, he's intense today. Dear Lord, he's so serious today. Because God takes sin seriously and we don't. I don't. And, and I can't walk away from this place someday, this church. I can't go to be with the Lord today and, and, and have not realize that I didn't preach the truth of what sin really is. God forbid that someone would walk out of this place and think that it's all right to live in their sin. God have mercy. It's not. 
God hates my sin because it's the very antithesis of his nature. And it leads to death. Second Peter says that God wishes that none should perish, not even one. Not a single one. Isaiah 52, 2. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden your face, his face from you so that you will not hear. John goes on in his article and he says this. But to dethrone God and enthrone yourselves, ourselves, not only dispenses with the cross, it also degrades both God and humans. What does that look like? Dethroning God and enthroning me. Expresses individualism. To dethrone God. What does it look like? Here's my throne. And we say it jokingly. Metaphorically, I've picked up the throne of God way too many times. And I've sat right there. To dethrone God, which many of us have done, are doing, as we speak, starts here in Genesis 3. The Bible studies that I sent out to you or gave to you today start with Genesis 3, creation. That is foundational to our faith. Creation is foundational. To dethrone God, Genesis 3, 5. This is the conversation. Remember we said there's conversations always happening in our head. When I sit in the throne and God's not in the throne, you know what I do? I entertain conversations with the devil. Uh, God doesn't want me entertaining any conversations with the devil. But when I sit in the throne, I'm like, all right, devil, what do you got? Genesis 3, 5, for God knows that, this is the devil speaking, God knows that when you eat it of it, your eyes will be opened. Wait, wait, wait a second here. You're telling me if I do this, my eyes will be open. Hmm. And I'll be like who? I'll be like God? Knowing good and evil? What could be wrong with that? And we take God off the throne, and we sit on the throne. It's enjoyable. Until it's not. It's fun. Until it's not. It, it brings life until it doesn't. The dethroning of God always starts with a lie. It always starts with like John 8, 44. You belong to the father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The enemy is a liar and the father of lies. And as I sit in my throne and have the conversation, I start to believe the lies of what the enemy says. It'll be all right. God's all right with it. You're going to be fine. The dethroning of God always starts with a lie. You will be God. And your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God. Genesis 3, 4. The enthroning of ourselves is this. The throne never stays empty. Either you're sitting in the throne or God's sitting in the throne. It's never empty. 
It's filled by someone, Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it had a delight to her eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and she ate. She dethroned God. She said, look, God, what you said about that tree, said you can have anything you want in this whole garden except for that one tree, and wouldn't you know it? It's the one that we want. And, 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 and she said, you know what, as she's having that conversation, she said, God, get off the throne because, God, I'm going to sit on the throne because, you know what, I can be God. Expressive individualism is dethroning God and enthroning me. It's rebellion against a holy God. That's a depressing thought. If it ended there, it's a depressing thought if that's where it stopped, but it didn't. Now what? Jesus. See, the answer is Jesus. I, I got nothing else for you. I don't have any magic potions. I don't have any, you know, slick words. I don't have, I, I, I got Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Philippians 2.10 says this, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Everyone will bow before God someday. It may not be here where you give him the throne, but I'll tell you this. The Bible says this in Hebrews, there's a point for every man to die and then stand judgment. And when you stand before God, you will fall on your face. And you will tremble with fear. I will tremble with fear. And what I will be thinking is this. Is God on the throne or was I on the throne? Who's on the throne in my life? Now, therefore there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There's many times I get on the throne and I got to go, Oh God, get off the throne. I've got to get off the throne. I'm not saying you never place in there, but my, I don't want to be in that chair unless I'm at my house and Ryan's giving me a bad time. That's the only time. I need God to be on the throne because I'm an idiot. I'm a fool apart from Jesus. I need Him on the throne. That's hope. See, after their salvation... And no one else, and there is no salvation, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among, among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus, 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 Jesus. And, and you know what? There's answers, questions that have been posed to you that you can't answer. Here's the answer. Jesus. There's things I don't understand. I don't understand why babies die. I don't understand why children die. I don't understand why people get abused or raped or murdered or what. I don't understand all this stuff. Here's what I know. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And sometimes it's all I got. But let me tell you, it's more than enough. He is more than enough. He's good. So what does God do with our sin? Every individual is responsible for his own choices. We live in a world where we like to do like I did when I was five. The devil made me do it. But the reality is this. You and I are accountable for our lives. You and I are responsible for our choices and the sin that we walk in or don't. Each of us 
has to answer this question. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? It's the question that Pilate asked as Jesus was standing before everyone in Matthew 27. What do you want me to do with this Jesus who is the Christ? It's the question that you and I have to answer in our soul. It's the question that has to be resolved. And, and, and it's, it's this, do I want to be the Jesus in my life? Or do I want to allow Jesus to be the Jesus in my life? It's a question that we ask. Reject Jesus and enthrone me? Or do I receive Jesus and enthrone him? Wait a second here. The simplicity of the gospel is the beauty of the gospel is the complexity of the gospel. I sit there or he sits there. It's pretty simple. I make the decisions. I trust God for who he is and his word and what it says. What does the Bible say of me? The Bible says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, sick, uh, wicked, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. That's what the Bible says of human nature. What does it say of me apart from Jesus? How could I ever trust me? Look, this is, how could I ever trust me in the throne when the Bible says this, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.10. Every time that I sit, or every time that I sin, I sit on the throne. Every time that I make a choice that is rebellious, I'm, I'm going, okay, okay, here's the deal. That chick is hot. I want to sleep with her. I'm not married to her. This is, you know, this is men's battle. Um, women, I want to buy that thing that I can't afford. Is that so bad that I just said that? I'm sorry. I, didn't, I couldn't think quick enough to get it. But it, I can never be trusted to be in the throne or I shouldn't be trusted to be a pastor. Every time that I sin and I think thoughts that I shouldn't thought, I'm going, okay, here we go. Sit in the throne because you know better than him. Every time I sit or sin, I'm taking God off the throne and I'm taking charge. And what I'm saying at it, the essence is this. I know better than you. It, it's a bad biblical worldview. You know what the world's preaching? We know more than God. In fact, there isn't a God. And if there is a God, happens to be God, He doesn't care. Rebellion, sitting on the throne... I know more than the creator of heaven and earth. It's that simple. But the hope, the hope is that when the one who belongs on the throne, the one who died for my sins and paid the price for the throne, the one who was there in Genesis 1 in the beginning as everything was being created, the one that walked the earth for some 33 years and lived a perfect life, the one that, that spoke truth and, and, and out of him came perfect love and, 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 and life, the one that, 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 that I can actually put hope in, sits on the throne. Romans 3.23 says this, for the wage, remember there's that death thing, for the wage of sin is death. Over and over we see death comes when we rebel. 
when we sin. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God is Jesus on the throne in our life. And the blood of Jesus that was spilled at Calvary some 2,000 years ago wipes everything away. Are you kidding me? I don't deserve it. Yet, at some point this week, I'm going to do this. All right. I'm going to settle into the throne. At some point during the week. I don't want to. Sit up here and preach a message on it and say I'm not going to. But I'm human and that's what we do too many times. See, see, the hope of salvation is this. God in His perfection. Man in His brokenness. There's this infinite gap between the two. It can't be bridged other than Jesus and His blood. And it's the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus that brings me hope. That brings me life. See, the hope in salvation, you have two choices. You or Him. Your eternal being. Now, no one here decided when to be born, who to be born to, and had anything to do with the growth in the belly of a, a woman. Yet you're going to determine salvation. You're going to determine. Or you're going to give it to Him. See, the hope in salvation is this. You're either enthroned. If you're enthroned, then God gives you what you're asking for. If you're on the throne of your life, God, as a gentleman, says, I'll give you what you want. Because you don't want me to be Lord of your life, because you don't want me, the creator of heaven and earth, the creator that's all-knowing, uh, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, the, the one that was beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, because you don't want me to be on the throne, I'm going to let you make the choice and I'm going to be a gentleman. I'm going to give you what you want, which is separation from God or death. Or, as the world says, expressive individual. I want what I want. Okay. God, I want what I want. Okay. God, I don't have to listen to the rules in this book. Okay. God, you can't put me in a box and tell me what to do with my body. Okay. God gives you exactly what you ask for. He gives you what you ask for. The hope in salvation is this. If Jesus is enthroned, if he's sitting on the throne, then his death paid the price for my foolishness. His blood paid and wiped away every one of those sins. And I walk in freedom. Dear Lord, that's unbelievable. That's hope. That's God's goodness. Remember we said sin leads to death. Someone has to pay the price in order for God to be just and righteous. Otherwise he wouldn't be righteous. He wouldn't be just if he just let all sin go crazy. If, the, if, if you just got away with everything you got away with, God is not just and righteous as his word says. 
Because it says, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. But we have hope. We have hope. Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us. While we are sinners, Christ died for us. Christianity versus every other religion in the world. This is the crux of Christianity, grace. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died for us and said, by my grace you are saved. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Jesus enthroned, Romans 10, 9. It says, if you want Jesus enthroned in your life, if you don't know Jesus today and you want him to be on the throne of your life, this is what Romans 10, 9 says. This is what he asks us to do. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... If you confess with your mouth that he is enthroned and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, he says you will be saved. For it is with the heart one believes and justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Jesus is on the throne, not John. Jesus is on the throne. And when I die, I don't, John doesn't stand before John. John doesn't stand, but Eddie doesn't stand before Eddie. Eddie stands before John. Each one of us stands before the creator of heaven and earth, and we give an account. But if I've confessed Jesus on the throne, his blood wipes away my sins. That's nuts. That's nuts. That. Thank you. That's worth clapping. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It is the good news that everyone needs. And when you walk out of this building, it's on us as Christian believers, if you know Jesus, to, to, to share your grace stories. Why? We talk about share a meal, spend time with others, and share the gospel. Share the gospel. Because Second Peter, Peter says that God wishes that none should perish. And Jesus left and he said, it's good that I go because I'm sending one even, I'm sending the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives in you that will testify of who I am. He will give a testimony of who Jesus is. And that spirit that lives in you wants to give a testimony to others. And, and, and you have the ability to say, no, 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 not today, Holy Spirit. Or you to go, Jesus is on the throne. I'm going to just be, okay, here's the gospel. You have the opportunity. You have the opportunity. I want to receive communion right now. But as, as we see, receive communion, I, I, the, uh, communion is a place of humility. It's a place of repentance. and It's a pr- place of restoration. It's a place where we get our hearts right. Excuse me. And as we receive the body of Christ and, and the blood... Oh God, forgive me. It's the place you go, God, forgive me for sitting on the throne. Oh God, forgive me for replacing you with me. Oh God, have mercy. And as as we receive this right now, I, I want you to examine your heart. And for every place, if you know Jesus, your personal Savior, for every place and every time that you took him off the throne and you sat in that chair and you sat in that throne, I, I, I want you, I want to repent and ask forgiveness and walk out of here. No condemnation, no guilt.
because of what Jesus did on the cross. Oh God, forgive me for sitting on your throne. Oh God, forgive me for taking up your throne. Oh God, forgive me for kicking you out of your throne. Oh God, forgive me, have mercy. The Bible says, Corinthians, on the night that Jesus betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body that's been given for you. He said, eat this in remembrance of me. 